You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Brand Engagement and Multimedia Strategy at Stylus. Now, we're in the middle of a revolution in consumer creativity, driven by platforms like TikTok, Twitch, Patreon, Substack, and even OnlyFans. So today, we're going to be talking about what's fueling this creativity renaissance and how brands can play a part. To discuss this, I'm joined by Josh Constein, Principal Investor and Head of Content at early stage venture capital firm Signalfire, and Julia Ahrens, Editor of Pop Culture and Media at Stylus. So welcome to you both. I want to talk about this golden age of consumer creativity that we're living through, but I think first, perhaps, Josh, it would be useful to define what we mean by that. How would you describe what's happening on the platforms that I mentioned to someone who perhaps has no knowledge of them? Yeah, I think really understanding the creator economy is about understanding that there is a huge number of people out there who want to be their own boss. They want to have control of their life and they want to make something that they're passionate about rather than just sitting in a cubicle. And, you know, if you look at the survey results now, more kids actually want to be YouTube stars than want to be than want to be astronauts now. And I think that shows this massive shift that's going on. And you know, we've we've been through the last age of social media where people watch their stars, their favorites, you know, the people that create content that resonates with them become these enormous web celebrities. And they say, hey, I feel like I could do that too. I have something creative to share or something smart to say. And the beauty of all of these new platforms and this explosion of new startups in this space is that now they have a wider breadth of options for monetizing than they ever have before. And that means every creator for any subculture, for any passion or any business vertical can find a way to develop a a following of loyal fans who monetize and help them turn that passion into their profession. So is this something that you, I mean, uh, perhaps you could talk a little bit about Signal Fire and your work there. And, and, and is, this, is this the kind of territory that you are mapping at Signal Fire and, and you are, uh, are, are trying to invest in? Absolutely. So SignalFire is an early stage venture fund. We invest from series C to series B. And you know, previously, I was the editor at large for TechCrunch for eight years. So I was a creator myself. I was a writer and a public speaker. And when I came to SignalFire, one of the biggest trends that we noticed was this incredible shift of creators monetizing on the big social media platforms to bring their audiences off and monetizing them through their own means through a huge wave of new startups. And we're we're investing heavily in this the, this wave. So we've already funded companies like Carrot, which is a credit card for influencers. And this lets web celebrities and creators pay for their content production upfront, whether that's a quip or sets or labor or video editing, and then they can pay that uh, that money back on that credit card once they've earned money from ad revenue or sponsorships or from direct patronage from their fans. And we're, we're heavily looking for new startups in this space. And that's why we made this big startup creator economy market map, which shows about 100 different startups in this space and breaks them down into three big layers and phases of the last 10 years of the creator economy. And so 
I think what, what people really need to understand what's happening right now is that the creator is becoming a founder. They have to cobble together all of these different tools for data science, community management, product design, subscription and payments management. And most creators are not going to do that all by themselves, especially not with their own tools. So instead, they're building teams around them of specialists that can help them. And they're bringing together all these tools from these new startups that are helping them with community management, with finance, uh, with growth. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about what that the those phases of the creator economy look like and how anyone out there, whether they're trying to become a startup in this space, launch something, whether they're trying to be a creator or they're an investor, how they can capitalize on this shift towards the creator economy. And do you feel like all this has been accelerated because of the situation that we're all in right now under the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. We've seen incredible tailwinds for a number of these startups because a lot of these social platforms are getting what I call the quarantine user loan. And basically what that means is that because people have lost a lot of their alternatives for entertainment or gathering or education, they're turning online to these startups and social platforms. And so those platforms have gotten this massive boost in users. And what they need to do is capitalize on them before they have to return that loan, which basically means when quarantines, when shelter in place, when COVID's, you know, the hardest era of COVID ends, you know, they're going to have to give back those users and they need to capitalize on them in the meantime. And that means building up a strong enough network effect that they can draw in more users and with a more and more valuable network that gets better with each additional user that joins such that when they do pay back that loan, there's still enough users there. So it doesn't feel like a ghost town on that feed or that, that tool. I mean, speaking of momentary ghost towns, and because I've been wondering a lot, obviously, at the moment, there's a lot of work happening from Triller, for instance, trying to get influencers to move to that platform. How do you think migrating fandoms works nowadays? Is there, you know, real staying power and actually taking a fandom and moving them to a different platform? And if so, what do you think most motivates communities to follow individual influencers to new platforms? Absolutely. So, What's really important is that when you join a brand new platform, people are generous with their follows. They're not following anyone. Their feeds aren't full already. And so they're more willing to give you a shot and experiment with following new creators. And so there is a big opportunity for being a first mover and an early adopter as a creator of these new platforms and trying to bring some of your audience over there. That said, you never really know what's going to happen to that platform and whether it's going to fizzle out. So you can't put all your eggs in one bag. And that's instead why we're seeing creators aggressively trying to diversify. And so that means if they've got one uh, you know, following on one really big platform, they're you know, like TikTok or YouTube, they're trying to push people to their other platforms like Instagram or Twitch. And if they get, when they move to those new platforms, they're trying to, they're also trying to capture reliable ways to keep in contact with people. You know, if somebody follows you on Twitter, that doesn't mean they see all your tweets. And so creators are also trying to capture email addresses and phone numbers so that no matter what happens to these social networks, and their algorithms, they'll still be able to have a connection to these new to their fans. And so I do recommend that creators try to diversify across platforms, don't get stuck on just one platform. Otherwise, you might end up like the Vine stars. You remember that short form video app, there were some creators who saw the writing on the wall that this was not going to be around forever and kept on cross promoting their other presences. But the ones that said, Oh, you know, I just want to be good to my fans. I don't want to spam them with these promotion requests to follow me elsewhere. When Vine shut down, they were just left out in the cold. And so you have to diversify. It's like having, you know, a stock portfolio. You don't want all your money in just one company.
Despite that, TikTok in particular does seem to be a place where you can grow followers and a, and a presence very quickly. And so I can see that that could become very seductive to a lot of creators. I wonder just before we delve into, into some more of the nitty gritty around the, the, the creator economy, just to, just to sort of stop on TikTok for a bit, because I know you write about it quite a bit, Josh, and obviously we at Stylus have written about it a lot. What is it about TikTok that's so powerful, both for creators and for, for followers? So there's two big things that I think are so unique and important about TikTok. The first is this concept of content density. This is what the, is ruling mobile experiences. High content density makes people addicted to mobile services. And content density is defined as the number of oohs, ahs, ha-ha, ah, ha-has or ahans that you get per second in a piece of content. So on mobile, there are so many distractions out, out in the world that you have to keep an iron grip on people's attention. And that means serving them with something interesting, something funny, something educational every second. You can't wait for them to, for a piece of content to unfold. And TikTok is just so dense. You know, in just 15 seconds, people have storyboarded whole skits and walked you through a whole story with a punchline or taught you something really interesting or have given you a tutorial on how to cook something or make something, or they've given you a really impassioned monologue about a story from their life. And it's so gripping. And when you compare those 15 or 60 second videos to YouTubes, which might be six or 10 minutes long with these long intros, it's like, what's up fam? Like hit smash my subscribe button. I'm so glad to see you all. It's like in the time it takes a YouTube star to just introduce their video, a TikTok star has already made you laugh. And I think that's why it's so addictive and people are flocking to it. And I also think it's a, a symptom of our exhaustion with social media stories. So this is the, you know, the, the format that was you know, invented by Snapchat, popularized by Instagram, where often you see very low content density. People effectively just hold up their phones and pan it across what they're doing and maybe add a quick caption of like, here's what I'm doing. It's like, maybe it took them 15 seconds to produce a 15 second video that I'm going to spend 15 seconds watching. That's really low density. What I love about TikTok is that stars often will spend two, five, 10 hours making a 10 or 60 second video. And because they're putting so much work in upfront, the payoff is huge and it's really worth your time as a viewer. And that's why I think so many fans are, are flocking in that direction. And why I think this is so important for the creators is that TikTok does something very different with its algorithm than all social networks beforehand. You know, most social networks like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, they look at a creator themselves and how they've done over time. Is their content consistently engaging. But what that means is that it takes years of steadily building up an audience on these platforms. You have to consistently be good. And if you're, you know, if you're a new creator coming on board, no matter how good your newest piece of content is, it's probably not going to get widespread distribution and go viral. You need this base of followers to help kick off your virality. But what's so different about TikTok and what's so exciting about it is that instead of assessing content on a creator as the atomic unit. They use the actual posts, the actual videos as the atomic unit. They don't care if your past videos are good or bad or how many followers you have. All they care about is when they show your video to people, how many of them actually engage with it, rewatch it, like it, or share it. And that means even if you've never created a TikTok before, if you come in with a brilliant idea or put a ton of work and make a high density TikTok that's really funny or really educational, you know, they'll, they'll test it with a small bed of, of users 
of strangers that you don't know who don't follow you. And if they like it, they'll amp that up and use the algorithm to show it to hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And that's why you've seen stars vault from zero followers to millions on TikTok overnight. And it's that opportunity for instant gratification, for instant growth, for not having to slog in the, the content mines for years like you might have to on YouTube or Instagram that is so appealing to creators and it's causing them to flock from every other social network into TikTok's network. And then also, I mean, because then if you look at those millions of viewers you get on one video within that, there's maybe a thousand viewers who take your content and iterate upon it, right? Because I think like the crowd creation systems in TikTok and the way it's really based on how memes evolve and how it lets users just share around the same core content and amplify each other's messages is what really drives the diversity there, right? You've got this baseline of content everybody riffs on and that is constantly evolving. Yeah, exactly. I actually wrote my master's thesis at Stanford about this concept of what I called symbiotic memes, which are effectively memes that help each other grow. And where you have a, an obvious template or equation where there are variables where it's obvious that you can sub them out with your own content. So, you know, the, the classic example is the Harlem Shake, this massive meme that happened, you know, five or eight years ago, where effectively, you know, people would show themselves kind of like, you know, very basically dancing, being kind of quiet or demure, mild, and then you know the, the, the drop of the, the song would happen, the drums could kick in, and all of a sudden everybody in the video like cuts to everyone going crazy. And people understood how to make their own versions. Like, oh, I just like hang out and be still with my friends, then the music drops and I do something crazy. And so many people made their own remix of that. And what happened is it drove a ton of attention back to the original. And TikTok has productized this concept. So whenever you make a video on TikTok, other people can use that audio and reconnect contextualize it with their own video. They know that the audio is the stable part of the equation. The video is the replaceable variable. And so with that, you end up where if somebody makes a popular audio, you'll see tons of people flock to reuse that audio in a different context. You know, one of my favorites is this, it's a song from actually a TV show and it's two people trying to sneak through a park going, don't be suspicious, don't be suspicious. And it's like, you know, they were trying to sneak around their boss in that case, but people recontextualize to show you know, new uh, parents trying to sneak out of their babies uh, in a nursery without waking them up, or, you know, a girl trying to escape her house without her sister realizing that she had borrowed her clothes without asking. There's just all these hilarious recontextualizations, and everyone ends up wanting to know, where did this audio come from? And they go back to the original. And I think that that, that opportunity of remixing is what makes TikTok so infinitely interesting, is because it actually pays, pays you if you keep up with it. You know, if you watch TikTok, TikTok consistently, you'll see these memes evolve and spin out and get crazier and crazier. And it kind of rewards you with that esoteric inside joke of knowing where something came from. Plus, even if you're not a especially creative creator, you have an opportunity. And that's what I think is so interesting here about TikTok is it walks you through the journey of becoming a creator. You know, at first you can just straight up copy somebody else's video, do the same thing they did in their video while using their audio. Then it teaches you over time, you're like, okay, cool. I got comfortable with making videos, now I can make my own remix. I'll take one of the variables out and sub my own in. My own in. And then uh, you learn more about what adding a little bit of creativity. And then eventually you start to be confident and, oh, I can make my whole own completely original video and create remix fodder for other people to use. And that's why TikTok feels like such an interconnected network of memes, why it's spawning so much culture. And it's something that everyone else sort of left to the end user to have to do that video editing, that 
remixing themselves on you know more complicated desktop software. TikTok lets you do it all right on mobile. And so it's democratized access to remixing. Yeah, I mean, it feels kind of meritocratic in a way, which in a way that a lot of platforms on the internet have promised to be, but haven't actually become. Uh, one very interesting point about that is that you know, most creatorship is kind of like being a free intern. You know, internships have, have gotten a bad rap, justifiably so, because they're, a free internship is really only accessible to people who have enough money or financial security to go without earning a wage. And that's basically what being a creator meant. You had to spend years slogging and not probably making very much money. And that restricted it to only people who had that financial security. And now, because you can come up and grow so fast and build a following so quickly if you produce high quality content, it's opening up creatorship to a much more diverse set of, of perspectives and make, allowing underrepresented minorities and those without as many so, as, as much socioeconomic privilege to become creators and share their voice. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. It's one that we, we talked about on Stylist in our recent look ahead, this idea of new perspectives emerging because of these uh, sorts of platforms and the fact that we are also all very online at the moment. So there is much more opportunity to reach new audiences because, you know, a lot of us don't have the entertainment options that we used to. One thing I'd like to just sort of touch on is clearly in the old days, the people who were good at making 15 to 30 second stories were brands through advertising. And that sort of approach to narrative and, and story has obviously now been taken away from them in a, in, a, in a way because these platforms can seem a little bit hard to access if you're in, say, marketing. You know, nobody wants to be the brand that does that jumps on a on a TikTok. You know, we saw it with Ocean Spray a couple of couple of weeks ago. You know, they waited a very long time before they picked up on that viral TikTok. And they did a pretty good job, you know. But a lot of people were expecting them to sort of bust out a, a, a copycat TikTok immediately and 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 kill everyone's vibe. So you know it's 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 difficult to know where to where to tread and how to tread carefully as a brand. What sort of advice do you think that you would give them? Yeah, I think it, being authentic on these platforms is really difficult because they're they're inherently so edgy and what becomes popular can be very unpredictable. What I will say is, you know, if you're a, a brand that suddenly experiences some viral moment like the, you know, the, the dog face ocean spray skateboarding video, you know, you should try to amplify the original, assist the original. And what I thought Ocean Spray did was so smart. They gave a truck to that creator. You know, they were trying to help him out personally rather than trying to rip off his meme, they supported him. And I think that that's a really important idea is don't rip off creators. Instead, you know, partner with them, ally with them, support them, encourage them. And I think that's a, a big part of it. But also I think brands just need to get a little bit more comfortable being absurd, getting out of their wheelhouse, getting away from their talking points. You know, the ones, the brands that are succeeding on these new social media platforms are the ones that are doing something a little bit weird that people want to jump on board with. They want to remix. They, they want to be part of that silly narrative. You can't be dry and just talk about what the value of your product is. Like that doesn't work in this uh, medium. And I think that what you also need to realize is that 
you the same skills that were made for great television commercials, great you know TV, or even making for great YouTube videos does not necessarily apply to this new micro entertainment medium that you're seeing emerge on Instagram and Triller and TikTok especially. And so what I recommend is don't try to port the same talent, the same directors or creators from those other mediums. Work with medium native creators because they're the ones who are going to understand what it is the audience wants. They're going to understand, they're going to understand all the opportunities from the, from the creative tools that they're offered. And they're going to make stuff that actually feels authentic to that platform. You know, you can't just parachute in. And I think we saw this with <laughs> Quibi most recently. You know, they took a lot of Hollywood directors that were used to making 30 or 90 minute uh, pieces of video and tried to get them to make, you know, five minute pieces of video or 10 minute pieces of video. And they didn't really figure it out. Whereas I think that if Quibi had just given all that money to the biggest TikTok stars, given each a $20 million budget, they would have made much better content. That would have felt so much more uh, fit and authentic for the that short form medium. Well, and that's some social features so you can actually market the content that's on the platform and not keep it locked away somewhere. Yeah, of course. Plenty of other reasons that, that they could have improved. And I think, but I think that is a, a good point. You know, uh, I wrote an article about how Quibi was the anti-TikTok and that's a bad thing. You know, Quibi didn't let you download trailers or like screenshots from their videos, which, and whereas TikTok does let you download these watermarked versions of its videos. So even if you do share them elsewhere, you're driving attention back to TikTok. That's that symbiotic meme concept again. You know, there wasn't any way for you to sort of follow other people or get personalized recommendations on Quibi. And again, that's something that I think is really important in this modern day and age. And so if you're building a product out there, you need to build build in these modern social features because nobody wants to do any of this by themselves. So we touched on this a little bit earlier, but one of the things that so many of these platforms that we're talking about have in common is that they enable this ability to create or build audiences around sort of niche content, specific passion points, specific interests, and specific, you know, very niche talents that certain people have. Why is this becoming more powerful? I mean, we've written about it on Stylist from the perspective of, you know, a shift away from the big, the big social networks. But what is, what's your perspective? So one size fits all is one size fits none when it comes to content. You know, that's why there's this trend that I call the nichening, whereby the reduced barrier to entry for content production, enhanced recommendation algorithms like we've been discussing, and diversified monetization options mean that there's an explosion of niche creators. Because you know, when you look at the phases of social media, and we go through this in our creator economy market map for Signal Fire, is that at the start, creators had to really conform to the big what the big brands wanted because they were monetizing through advertising directly on the social platforms. Then with the rise of influencer marketing, again, they needed to be brand safe. They had to work with the brands to convey their messaging. And that meant that through all of that, they had to be making lowest common denominator content, content that appealed to everyone that was mainstream. But the mainstream is becoming obsolete. You know, there's that made sense when there was only a few TV channels or radio or print uh, channels uh, and mediums that you could get your content from. But now with these platforms that allow you to follow every single different creator, there's a creator for every subculture. And that's what we're seeing happen right now is that, you know, every Every, creature, every subculture, every business vertical, every passion deserves their own creators. And now that we have all of these new monetization
innovation tools coming out of startups. Uh, they're able to instead make niche content that doesn't have to appeal to the widest possible audience, doesn't need to rack up millions and millions of views to get those ad pennies. Instead, they just need a loyal audience of maybe a few hundred or a few thousand uh, followers who are willing to pay them over Patreon for a monthly subscription to their content, tip them on their live streams, buy their merchandise, pay for a personalized shout out on a platform like Cameo. Uh, these are all ways that these creators can uh, monetize even if they have a small audience, as long as that audience is hardcore and loyal to them. And the, the rise of this nichening also means that you're going to get to see creators for different subcultures that have never had creators before. You're going to see a wider array of diverse voices, and you're going to have new opportunities for niche products to do marketing because you know maybe you wouldn't your really niche product wouldn't appeal to a wide audience. So buying an ad, you know, connected to a creator's big show or putting a making a TV commercial wouldn't make any sense for you. But let's say you sell, you know, like role playing or you know Magic the Gatherings, this like nerdy collectible card game that I love. You know, if you sell like you know dice and deck boxes and cards for these like obscure games, now you can actually just partner with creators that make content specifically about Dungeons and Dragons or Magic the Gathering and hit a specific audience who's really passionate about that space. And it's much more effective than these big, broad shotgun approach ad buys. And so this, this nichening is great for creators who can, you know, who don't have to conform to the, the mainstream common denominator. It's great for fans because every one of them gets a creator for their own interests. And it's great for brands too, because they'll get a chance to hit the, their most loyal and most specific fans and, and potential customers without having to dilute their message for a wider audience. So Josh, I ask each guest the same three questions at the end of every Future Thinking episode. So the first one is, if you had a million dollars, where would you invest it right now? Now, obviously, I'm talking to someone who works in VC, in the VC world. So you don't have to talk about SignalFi's investments particularly, but where in the market do you think there is something right now that's really killing it? One thing that I think is a really fascinating space that needs more investment is in job interview prep and placement. I think there are so many people out there who are great at their job. They're not great at job interviewing. They hate that process of searching through all the opportunities and filling out all the resumes and sending them all out to everybody. And a lot of people, you know, they might say they know something on their resume, but they could probably use a refresher. And I think a great business that I would love to invest a million dollars in is an on-demand interview interview job interview prep service where people can you know find experts in a space get on demand one on one refreshers of the skills that they're going to need to know for their job interview and that they could either pay for that service on layaway so they don't have to pay up front they can pay once they get that job or through an income sharing agreement where they actually pay a portion of their their job salary to the 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 job interview prep service over time so they don't have to pay up front and i think that you know we need people to get back to work and and we need to get through that bottleneck of the application process. And so I think that there, there's already so many great startups that have been built on test prep for like the SATs, for instance. I think you know job interviews, the gratification is so much more instant. The change to your life and your income is so drastic and immediate that this, there's a, a ripe opportunity for people to build job interview and, and job placement startups right now. So, I mean, th you, this might be the same sort of I, uh, the second question is what's a consumer problem or challenge you think hasn't been successfully solved yet so that may be the same the same answer or do you have a different answer for that I mean, I, I think recruiting 
in general is this big problem. And that's actually what SignalFire set out to do as, an, as a venture fund. You know, we realized that founders uh, were spending so much of their time focused on recruiting instead of just building their business and their product. So we built this recruiting engine called Beacon. It crunches a half trillion data points and it has visibility on most of the tech talent in the Western world. It gives them a skill and a poachability rank. And so for our founders, we can run these reports to say, here are the top 100 iOS individual contributors uh, that are based in this area or, or you know, have this specific skill set. And you know, we really think that if we can do help with startups with better recruiting, we'll be able to help more people find the jobs that they love and we'll help those startups grow faster and focus more on their business. So I just generally think that how people are connected from jobs uh, or from, from skills to jobs is super important. And another space I think here is that, that I, I would really like to see more investment in or that I think is a big consumer problem is that when people graduate college, you know, they often are immediately incentivized to jump into a new job to start paying back their student loans or just to afford living. And I think you know, we have so many support structures and loan systems for people who when they're students, but so little for when they immediately graduate and they're in that interim period when they're trying to find a job. And I think if we were able to offer better financing, better loan structures for this, people wouldn't take the first job they could get that might not actually be the best application of their skills or where they want to build a career long term. And instead, they'd get into higher paying jobs that are more fulfilling that they're going to actually be able to apply their passion to and become truly great at. And so I would love to see some startup or somebody solving this consumer need of how do you bridge the gap between when people graduate from expensive higher education institutions to getting the perfect job that actually leverages those skills that they built. And finally, which individuals or brands do you look to for inspiration in your work? I'm a big fan of the Type House crew, which is kind of like a TikTok hype house but for newsletter writers. And we have a group chat together uh, where we're all sharing ideas about how to become independent writers uh, and build a business off of our, our off of thought and knowledge. And so people like Nathan Bastiez, who started the Everything Bundle, Lee Jin, who writes a lot about the creator economy and invests in it, as well as Alex Kantrowitz, who left BuzzFeed to become an independent writer for his own publication called Big Tech. Really, really just constantly inspired by them. And another is a YouTube creator called Mr. Beast. And he's done something really brilliant by taking the sponsorship money that brands give him and turning them into prize money for contests. And so it makes people want to follow him, uh, want to watch his videos to see who wins these prizes or get a chance at those prizes themselves. That grows his following. So the next time the brand wants to give him more money in a sponsorship so he can give even bigger prizes. Now he's giving away cars and Lamborghinis and even houses, a million dollars at a time. And I think that that's just such a brilliant way to to sort of subvert the traditional product placement and spo uh, sponsorship and influencer marketing space to instead give money back to the end users. And I think that's so beautiful. Well, thank you so much. That was uh, a real whirlwind tour of the digital creativity economy. If you, if you guys, if anyone out there is building something in this space, I would love to hear about it. SignalFire, our venture fund, would love to hear about it. You can find me on Twitter and pitch me through DMs, or you can join my email newsletter, constein.substack.com. I reply to every one of my replies. So would love to hear what you guys are building out there in this, this world of the creator economy. Fantastic. Well, there you go get to it guys thank you so much i'd like to thank my guests josh constein and julia Ahrens, and thank you for listening and i hope you'll join us next time for more future thinking from stylus you've been listening to future thinking from stylus the show where our analysts alongside industry thought leaders unpack the big trends you need to know about 
Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.